Welcome to the Parkcast series, episode 58, part 1. Adolescent Parents, Introduction. The Parkcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archive. This podcast provides a summary of the literature related to adolescent parenthood, with a specific focus on this population's involvement with the child welfare services. Introduction This research review provides a summary of the literature related to adolescent parenthood, with a specific focus on this population's involvement with child welfare services. This review is organized around four central research questions. 1. What is the prevalence of adolescent parenthood in Canada and within child welfare services? 2. Why are some adolescents at higher risk of pregnancy? 3. What are the outcomes of adolescent parents and their children? 4. How can we support adolescent parents' ability to care for their children? In general, adolescent parenthood is often related to social and environmental disadvantage, including poverty, intergenerational trauma and abuse, and other social determinants of health. Adolescent parenthood further exasperates this social and environmental disadvantage, including educational achievement and economic outcomes, resulting in a cycle of intergenerational disadvantage. As this report is aimed at service providers, the review will focus on more proximal causes and consequences of adolescent parenthood as opposed to the social and environmental causes. However, it is important for practitioners to keep in mind that the social and political factors influencing the outcomes of adolescent parents are outside of the adolescent's control, and that effective service provision for this population must be non-judgmental, culturally sensitive, and developmentally appropriate. Defining Adolescent Parenthood Adolescent parenthood is typically understood to mean parenthood prior to the age of 20 and is also known as teenage or teen parenthood. While Statistics Canada defines adolescence as age 15 to 20 and adolescent parenthood as occurring within this period, puberty in females typically occurs between the ages of 10 and 14. This means that females under 15 can also experience pregnancy in pre-adolescence. The lack of uniformity in how adolescent parenthood is defined has resulted in differences in how it is measured. Measuring Adolescent Parenthood, Determining Prevalence and Incidence. Methods Matter. To answer the research question, how many adolescent parents are there in Canada and how many are involved with the child welfare services, we need to first understand the difference between prevalence and incidence. Prevalence is the proportion of cases at a given time. Incidence refers to the number of new cases within a given period. Prevalence indicates how many adolescents in the population have ever experienced a teen pregnancy, while incidence tells us how many adolescents have given birth within the past year. In Canada, all births are tracked administratively. In 2017, there were 65 births for mothers under the age of 15 and 7,793 births for mothers aged 15 to 19, representing an incidence rate of 7.9 births per 1,000 females under age 19 or under. This incident of adolescent parenthood has been decreasing in Canada. In 2011, there were 102 births to mothers under the age of 15 and 14,554 births to mothers aged 15 to 19, an incident rate of 13.5 births per 1,000 females under the age of 19. Importantly, these numbers represent live births, not all adolescent pregnancies. 
Approximately three quarters of pregnancies to females under 15 and half of all pregnancies to females aged 15 to 19 end in termination. And this rate has remained unchanged. The rate of adolescent parenthood varies by province. Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia all have rates under 10 births per 1,000 females, while Saskatchewan has a rate of over 30 births per 1,000 females, and none of it has a rate of over 100 births per 1,000 females. In the United States, adolescent parenthood is even more prevalent with a birth rate of 20.3 births per adolescent females aged 15 to 19. This represents a total of 209,809 babies in 2015. There's a wide variation between states in the incidence of teen parenthood, with a high of 34.6 births per 1,000 females in Arkansas to a low of 8.5 births per 1,000 females in Massachusetts. Notably, these numbers include only those teens who go on to give birth. Teens who have an abortion or a miscarriage are not part of these statistics. An additional 11 per 1,000 females will terminate their pregnancy. Risk factors of teen pregnancy. Methods matter. Answering the research question, why are some adolescents at higher risk of pregnancy than others, requires us to examine the risk and protective factors associated with adolescent pregnancy. There are two widely used ways to answer this research question. The first method is to compare mothers who experienced their first pregnancy during adolescence with mothers who experienced their first pregnancy during adulthood. The second method is to compare adolescents who experience a pregnancy with adolescents who do not experience a pregnancy. The first method was used by Al-Sahab and colleagues in 2012. They compared teen mothers with average-aged mothers between the ages of 20 and 35 years from a nationally representative sample of Canadian women who gave birth in 2005 and 2006. Because the sample was nationally representative, in other words, it was a random selection of all women who gave birth in a certain period, it could be weighted to approximate all mothers in Canada. Methods matter. Weighting is a statistical process that takes a sample and uses statistical adjustment to make a sample reflect the entire population. Al-Sahab's and colleagues' study had a sample of 6,188 women, but was weighted to represent 76,110 Canadian mothers, 2% of whom were under the age of 20. The authors then addressed what factors increased women's risk of having a child prior to age 20 compared to after age 20. The authors found that adolescent mothers were more likely to have low socioeconomic status, to be born in Canada, to have no partner, to reside in the western prairies, and to have previously experienced physical or sexual abuse. However, the researchers did not take into account whether this was the woman's first pregnancy. Approximately 14% of the women in the sample had experienced a teen pregnancy, and 6% had previously given birth during adolescence. Other studies have compared adolescents who experience a pregnancy with adolescents who do not experience a pregnancy. Research using small samples of adolescents, usually based within a single clinic or school, has found that teen mothers are more likely to have a sister that also experiences a teen pregnancy, indicating a common risk factor that can impact members of a family. More generalizable results can be obtained from large-scale studies that track a large number of adolescents over time. A U.S. longitudinal study that tracked 15,701 students aged 12 to 18 years for over a decade found that almost 20% of adolescent mothers had experienced physical abuse by a caregiver and that 10% had experienced sexual abuse. Another U.S. longitudinal study that tracked over 12,000 children administratively through medical records, child protection reports, and criminal records, and sorted the families into two groups. 
families experiencing poverty, and families experiencing poverty as well as child welfare involvement. Children from families experiencing both poverty and child welfare involvement were almost twice as likely to experience a pregnancy before age 18 compared to children from families experiencing poverty alone. Other significant predictors of teen pregnancy included a history of running away, which the individuals in this group had an 88% higher risk, having a cognitive delay or a learning disability, which resulted in a 60% higher risk, or having delinquency record at the age of 14, which resulted in a 2.5 times higher risk. On the other hand, receiving mental health services was associated with a 36% decrease in risk of pregnancy, and having a caregiver who completed high school decreased the risk of pregnancy by a quarter. Noel, Shank, and Putnam in 2009 conducted a meta-analysis examining the relationship between child sexual abuse and teed pregnancy and found that based on the results of 21 different studies, child sexual abuse more than doubled the odds of experiencing a teen pregnancy. Based on these findings, the authors estimated that 4.5 out of 10 pregnancies might have had a prior history of childhood sexual abuse. Methods matter. A way of accounting for the methodological limitations of smaller scale studies is to conduct a meta-analysis. This methodology combines the quantitative findings across many different studies to calculate an overall effect. Making sense of the many reasons that place adolescents at higher risk of pregnancy can be difficult. Theoretical frameworks help to organize a lot of the information by providing a theoretical structure that hypothesizes how the different components are interrelated and how they might influence each other. In the case of a complex issue, such as teen pregnancy, where the risk factors spread across generations, families, and communities, a suitable theoretical framework is the ecological framework. This is not the only theory that can be used to explain teen pregnancy, but it is one of the more useful ones due to its ability to incorporate individual factors, family factors, community factors, and intergenerational factors. The ecological framework was developed by Bronfenbrenner in 1979 and has been widely used in child welfare research. The focus is on the child, which is the center of the model, surrounded by multiple levels, with the family closest to the child, followed by the community, and then society. The outermost level is what is known as the chronosystem, and it represents the experiences and changes over time that families and communities might experience, such as divorce or socio-historical contexts like residential schools. Other possible theories that can be applied to adolescent parenthood include resilience theory, attachment theory, and family systems theory. Each theory has a different focus and presents the issues from a different perspective. The theoretical focus of researchers and practitioners, whether stated or implied, will influence what factors they pay attention to and what factors might be neglected. For instance, practitioners employing an attachment theory-informed approach will focus on the parent-child relationship but they may neglect to consider the systematic barriers such as poverty that make attachment difficult. Thinking critically. What theoretical framework do you typically use when working with adolescent parents? Does your theoretical framework widen or narrow how you practice with adolescents who are parents? Outcomes of adolescent parents. Methods matter. Answering the research question, what are the outcomes of adolescent parents and their children, can be done by looking at families over time with longitudinal research, or by comparing children born to teen parents with children born to adult parents. These methods have, been, have resulted in the discovery that social and environmental factors play a larger role in determining the outcomes faced by adolescent parents and their children.
Adolescent mothers are at risk of experiencing several negative outcomes, including the physical and emotional well-being of themselves and their children. Many adolescent parents become involved with child welfare services. A U.S. statewide study of all children born to adolescent mothers in 2006 and 2007, over 85,000 individuals, examined maternal history and tracked the family until the child was five years of age. Of these mothers, 28% came into contact with child welfare services prior to the birth of their baby, and 11% had a substantiated report of abuse or neglect. Of the babies born to adolescent mothers, 23 were reported to child welfare services, and 7% had a substantiated report within the first five years of their lives. There was a significant overlap between mothers who had contact with child welfare services prior to the birth of their babies, and babies who had contact with the child welfare services by age 5. Particularly, 44% of children that had child welfare reports by age 5 of mothers who had been substantiated as victims of maltreatment when they were a child. The authors assessed that factors related to being an adolescent parent and found that being maltreated as a child was the strongest predictor of teen pregnancy. This factor remained a predictor even when accounting for family income, maternal age, race, paternity, and prior pregnancies. Similar analyses have been carried out in Canada, though on a smaller scale. A group of researchers analyzed the Canadian Incident Study of Reported Child Abuse and Neglect, CIS, with a focus on adolescent parents with children under the age of 6. By pooling data from the CIS 2003 and the CIS 2008, they were able to examine a larger sample of women. The authors considered families with substantiated maltreatment investigations where the primary caregiver was the biological mother and sorted them into three groups. 1. Teen mothers, those 18 and younger. 2. Young adult mothers, aged 19 to 21. And 3. Adult mothers, aged 22 and over. Teen mothers made up only 4% of families investigated by Child Protection Services, but they tended to have a higher rate of risk factors compared to other mothers. Assessing the relationship between factors, the, rela the researchers found that both teen mothers and young adult mothers were more likely to have experienced out-of-home care as a child compared to adult mothers. As well, teen and young adult mothers were more likely to have their own child placed in out-of-home care during their investigation compared to adult mothers. Young mothers also faced additional challenges. The researchers found that teen mother families were almost twice as likely to rely on social assistance as their primary income source compared to adult mothers. Young mothers were also more likely to have unstable housing, with 20% of teen mothers experiencing three or more moves in the previous year compared to 6% of adult mothers. Comparisons of adolescent mothers who maltreated their children with those who did not can also help to determine what might be areas of intervention. Scanapieco and Connell Carrick in 2016 examined all child welfare cases investigated during a nine-month period in Dallas County, Texas, who were involved for physical abuse or neglect, and the child was between the ages of zero and four years. The authors compared families with mothers under the age of 20 who were substantiated for maltreatment with families with mothers under the age of 20 who were not substantiated for maltreatment, using 74 families total. It is important to note that this sample is limited to only families that have been reported to Child Protection Services, which can represent only a portion of families experiencing child maltreatment. In terms of maternal characteristics, only caregiver knowledge about child development and previous substantiation maltreatment were significant predictors of substantiated maltreatment. This means that when considering all available information at once, for example, socioeconomic status, only these two factors were significantly associated with substantiated maltreatment. 
The results also highlight the importance of conducting multivariate analyses to more effectively determine how risk factors and outcomes are related. However, one methodological limitation of this study is that it's only based on 74 families. A larger sample of families would increase the statistical power of this test, which would increase the ability of the analyses to find significant results. In general, younger mothers are more likely to engage in harsh parenting behavior, such as the use of psychological and physical aggression or spanking. Using data from the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Study, Lee and Guterman in 2010 examined 1,597 mother-father dyads and found that even when accounting for background variables like income and education, adolescent mothers were more likely to use spanking and physical aggression towards their children. If the father was also an adolescent, the children were at an increased risk of experiencing psychological aggression from both parents as well as physical aggression. Other research with the Fragile Families data has found that adolescent mothers are more likely to use harsh parenting techniques if they had low social and cultural capital, although adolescent mothers with high levels of social and cultural capital were still more likely to engage in harsh parenting techniques than adult mothers. These findings point to the importance of targeting young parents with parenting interventions as soon as possible, before harsh parenting turns into abuse. Longitudinal research with teen mothers has found that those who experienced physical or sexual abuse as a child were more likely to have difficulty attaching to their children and to exhibit maternal hostility. Insecure attachment would in turn predicted higher externalizing problems of the child in preschool with the effects continuing into grade three, which is the final year available for analysis. Longitudinal studies can also tell us about the long-term outcomes of children and of teen parents. The Ontario Child Health Study, OCHS, has followed 2,355 children since 1983. Children born to teen mothers had significantly lower educational achievement, life satisfaction, and personal income compared to children born to adult mothers. While negative outcomes were worse for children born to current teen mothers, children born to adult mothers who had a previous child during their adolescence, so prior teen mothers, were also at risk of these negative outcomes. An even larger study of 32,179 children in Manitoba found that while only 16% of these children were born to teen mothers or prior teen mothers, they accounted for 27% of infant hospitalizations, 34% of deaths before age 18, 30% of high school dropouts, 51% of foster care placements, and 40% of those on social assistance as young adults and 56% had a child themselves during adolescence. Similar research has emerged in the U.S. where analyses of the National Data Archive on child abuse and neglect found that teen mothers were two times more likely to have their child placed in out-of-home care and accounted for approximately 60% of out-of-home placement. The Canadian National Longitudinal Survey of Children and Youth found that children of teen mothers had lower scores on mathematics standardized tests and higher rates of committing property offenses compared to children of adult mothers. According to the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study, the birth cohort, in, U in the U.S., children's scores on standardized reading and mathematics were significantly worse if neither the teen parent nor the teen's parents had completed high school, indicating that there may be an intergenerational effect on education. 
some risk factors exasperate negative outcomes for adolescent mothers and their children. For example, in Mad Crow and colleagues' 2014 analysis of a cohort of adolescents who were tracked for over a decade, teen mothers who experienced physical or verbal dating violence victimization were more likely to experience a pregnancy at a younger age, and their babies were more likely to have low birth weights. Importantly, this effect was stronger for Black mothers than non-Black mothers, indicating that the additional social and financial inequality faced by these mothers was interacting with and exasperating the effect of other risk factors. Apart from child welfare involvement and poorer educational outcomes, teen parents are also faced with poverty. A longitudinal study of a cohort of African-American residents from Chicago, tracked from grade one onward, found that by the age of 32, those who experienced teen parenthood were more likely to be unemployed, to live in poverty, to be on social assistance, and to have a high school education only. Importantly, the negative effects of teen parenthood were stronger for women than for men with teen fathers having similar outcomes to non-teen fathers by age 42, while the negative effects on women's education and income remained. Working with adolescent parents. Methods matter. The best way of determining the effectiveness of an intervention is a randomized control trial. Randomized control trials involve randomly assigning half of the participants to an intervention and half of the participants to a control group that receives either no intervention or treatment as usual. This method allows for isolation of the effects and to assess whether the intervention is effective. For instance, randomized control trials have shown us that teen parents who do not receive a reversible, long-acting contraception immediately after their first pregnancy are five times more likely to experience a second pregnancy within one year of teens who receive a long-acting contraception. Another randomized control trial found that motivational interviewing was also an effective method for increasing contraception compliance by teen parents and decreasing repeat pregnancy compared to home visits alone. School-based programs. Baytop, in 2016, conducted a meta-analysis of all randomized and non-randomized studies on teen parents from 1970 to 2003 and found that for African-American mothers, few interventions re resulted in improved educational outcomes. Only school-based interventions resulted in significant improvements across studies, but none of the school-based interventions were analyzed with a randomized design, meaning that teens were self-selecting which group they would participate in, which potentially biases the results. Baytop's findings suggest that school-based interventions could potentially be the most effective interventions for African-American teen mothers, compared to home visits or community-based programs, but further research is needed to determine if that is actually the case. School-based intervention programs that include a parent support program and childcare might be more successful than other programs because they address many of the challenges teens face in attending intervention programs. Teen parents are frequently enrolled in school, so there are no added transportation requirements and the childcare component ensures that teens have the time necessary to attend the program. One such school intervention found high levels of program engagement low program dropout, high school engagement, and low levels of repeat pregnancy. However, the small sample size included in that analysis, 65 teen mothers and their children, and lack of randomization make it difficult to generalize the findings to other populations. Preventing Adolescent Parenthood of Youth in Foster Care Youth in foster care engage in sexual intercourse at roughly the same age as their peers, 
However, they are more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior, including unprotected sex and transactional sex, than their peers. As well, as many as half of females in foster care report experiencing sexual harassment or forced sex. Placement instability and frequent changes in workers, caregivers, and schools can impact the youth's ability to access information and resources on safe sex and contraception. Therefore, ensuring that youth in foster care have a non-judgmental adult with whom they feel comfortable enough to discuss sexual behavior freely is crucial in preventing unwanted pregnancies for these youth. Once a teen becomes a parent, meta-analyses indicate that despite social and behavioral interventions, teen parents are unlikely to achieve the same social and educational outcomes as their peers. Child care. Another alternative to randomized control trials is longitudinal research. Following families for several years allows researchers to record what factors occur when, allowing them to establish temporality, if not actual causality. Using the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study birth cohort of approximately 8,000 individuals, Moulburn and Clylock in 2012 examined how different childcare arrangements of teen parents impacted maternal and children's outcomes. The authors found that teen parents who primarily provided childcare were more likely to experience poor socioeconomic outcomes for the mother and poor educational outcomes for the child, compared to teen parents who had access to any form of childcare, including center-based care, paid home-based care, or free kin-based care. Teen parents with low income were overrepresented in the self-provided childcare group, compared to higher-income teen parents. These results suggest that teen parents with low income, particularly those who do not have other sources of childcare, require targeted childcare services to ensure that these parents are able to complete school and engage in employment initiatives. Kin. One longitudinal study that used the ecological framework to examine the intergenerational transmission of maladaptive parenting strategies tracked adolescent Mexican-American mothers, about 200 mothers, from the time that their child was two until the time that their child was five. The researchers measured both mother and grandmother's parenting strategies and the child's behavior and then used structural equation modeling to examine the relationships of these variables over time. Mother's potential for engaging in child abuse was also measured using the brief child abuse potential inventory. The researchers found that negative parenting behaviors by the grandmother, such as withholding affection or belittling of the mother, was significantly related with an increased score in the, the brief child abuse potential inventory, which in turn was related to increased child externalizing behavior and increased use of punitive discipline by the mother, like yelling and spanking. Increased use of punitive discipline was also associated with increased externalizing behavior of the child. Grandmother's use of negative parenting behaviors was also a significant predictor of increased externalizing behavior of the child, even when controlling for the mother's behavior toward the child. This research, based on a sample of U.S. mothers, tracked for five years, presents some initial support of the intergenerational influences behind parenting behaviors. Findings strongly suggest that attempts to work with teen parents to improve parenting should also include other caregivers in the homes, as their behaviors also have an impact on risk of abuse and child well-being. Methods matter. Structural equation modeling is a sophisticated statistical procedure that allows researchers to represent relationships between unobserved construct, called latent variables, from observable variables. For instance, we cannot measure self-esteem or depression directly, but we can use measurement instruments and scales with questions or items designed to approximate the concept, which is the latent variable. For example, using the Rosenberg self-esteem scale to measure self-esteem 
or the Beck's depression inventory to measure depression. Structural equation modeling can then estimate the relationships between latent variables using self-esteem to predict depression, which in turn can be used to predict work for performance while at the same time calculating the relationship between self-esteem and work performance. The more latent variables there are, the more complex the model becomes, with any relationships between many variables being estimated at the same time. Similar to the longitudinal study using structural equation modeling and the brief child abuse potential inventory, a similar study examined the intergenerational effects of parenting among white and African-American mothers. Valentino and colleagues in 2012 tracked 70 mothers of teen mothers and their children from the mother's third trimester until the child's 18th birthday. Two-thirds of teen mothers in the sample self-reported experiencing emotional, sexual, or physical abuse. Almost half of their children, 45% in particular, also self-reported experiencing emotional, sexual, or physical abuse. Statistical analyses incorporating several factors found that exposure to community violence and authoritarian parenting attitudes significantly predicted experiencing child maltreatment of both mother and child, and though the latter was only significant for African-American mothers, not white mothers. This study shows that when mothers have a history of maltreatment, the interventions to prevent intergenerational transmission of abuse might need to be tailored to the parent's cultural and community context. At the macro level, children exposed to community violence are at a higher risk of maltreatment, while at the micro level, parenting styles play a greater role for African-American mothers compared to white mothers. While this study is methodologically strong in its ability to suggest that abuse patterns are impacted by community factors, the small sample size makes it difficult to generalize to non-urban populations and communities with a different racial makeup. Prenatal classes. Al-Sahab and colleagues in 2012 found that teen mothers were more likely to attend prenatal classes than other adult mothers. These findings suggest that prenatal classes are a good opportunity to screen and intervene with adolescent parents who might struggle with parenting responsibilities without additional assistance. In addition, teen mothers were also at a risk of being overweight, as are their children, so connecting teen mothers to comprehensive health and social support services could be beneficial. Culture. Certain populations might require different kinds of support. For example, one study found that depression rates were higher among white teen mothers and lowest among Hispanic teen mothers. Another study that found that for Hispanic teen mothers, the relationships between maternal age and academic outcomes and social functioning were at least partially mediated by the mother's relationship with the father and with her own mother. These findings could suggest that familial bonds play an important role in the outcomes of Hispanic mothers and should be a focus of practitioner intervention. Engaging youth. Another way of answering the question of how can we support adolescent parents' ability to care for their children is to ask the youth directly. Qualitative research is limited in its generalizability to all youth, but can provide contextual support for quantitative findings and a more comprehensive picture of the teen parents' experiences. For example, while quantitative findings indicate that teen parents are more likely to drop out from school and less likely to complete post-secondary education, Qualitative interviews with teen parents indicate that teen parents value education and have a desire to return to school to help them provide a better future for their children that is not always possible due to individual and structural barriers, such as lack of childcare or lack of funds. Talking with youth can also contextualize complex quantitative findings. One in five youth will experience a rapid repeat pregnancy, which is a second pregnancy within one year of the first child's birth. 
Interviews with teens who have experienced a rapid repeat pregnancy found that these teens report feeling ambivalent about the future and described feeling a lack of control over their own lives. This research suggests that discussion with all parenting teens to determine whether they are experiencing ambivalence about the future, as opposed to hope, can help to identify which teens are at risk for a rapid repeat pregnancy and offer additional support to those teens. Conclusion Teen parents face social and economic challenges that are exasperated by parenthood. There are several steps to providing services to teen parents. The first is to identify teens at risk for adolescent parenthood and provide prevention services. The second step is providing prenatal and post-birth services to teen parents to prevent future pregnancies and to ensure that adolescent parents have the skills and material resources necessary to be successful parents. Both of these steps are particularly challenging in the child protection context, where adolescents might be seen both as children in need of protection and as parents in, of children who are in need of protection. Part two of this episode, Adolescent Parents Practice Considerations, discusses specific strategies for how practitioners can effectively support teen parents within the child welfare context. You have been listening to the Partcast series, episode 58, part one. Adolescent Parents, Introduction. The Partcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a Canadian membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information on this episode's topic or other episodes in the Partcast series, please visit www.partcanada.org.